Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind. Also younger than the sun. And our bonnet boat was one as we sailed into the mystic. The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. In today's episode, I continue the story of my formative years in North Vancouver. It was a happy childhood in a safe and secure world, but that was about to change. We would move away and establish a lifelong pattern of upwardly mobile cross-country transients. Our many subsequent moves would lead me to idealize my childhood and try to recover a sense of belonging in every new church we attended. But with each move, it became clear I only really wanted to go home. I'm reading from my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland, Chapter 1, Part 2. Who was this trusting little boy as he tore up and down the back lane on his bike, with the gravel flying out from his tires into the ditches, clattering against the back fences as he whizzed by? Who was Widow Boyon Pearson, whose speech impediment prevented him from pronouncing his own name? I was finding my place in our family and in the world, somewhere between Greg the Protector and Lorraine the Newborn Princess. Unlike me, both my brother and sister were fair-skinned redheads, drawing from genes on my mother's Irish side. They were sensitive souls for whom the world could be an overwhelming place. Greg's coping strategy was to impose order on the world. He grew up to be a cop, which made perfect sense, law and order coming naturally to him. But when the world didn't cooperate— when toys didn't work as they were supposed to or people didn't behave as they should, it bothered him. Sometimes it would enrage him. Once he swept a plastic model off his desk when the parts didn't stick properly. It was a robin perched on a branch, very delicate and beautiful, but it scattered into a hundred pieces across our bedroom floor. He had a particular way of getting me to fall into line. I loved my big brother and followed him everywhere. But just to be sure of my allegiance, he would repeat the same story to me every night as we went to sleep. A great parade was coming to town, he said. He would be riding in that parade on a big white horse. I could be in the parade too. But unless I did everything he said, I'd have to ride on a turtle. Horrified, I did everything he said. I was glad to have my own fixer. But it was like having the protection of a mafia don, a dangerous alliance. Once we were packing up from a week's summer vacation at a cottage on Cultus Lake. I was three or four years old and my mom had dressed me for the car ride home in short pants and a short-sleeved shirt. To fill the time while our parents loaded up the car, Greg suggested we play a game, Blind Man's Bluff. Just go wherever I tell you, he said, but you have to keep your eyes closed. He directed me around the beach for a while, which was harmless enough and quite a bit of fun. Then he pointed me in the direction of the dock. Keep going, he said. Farther, 
farther, just a little farther. I took every step he told me to take, right to the end of the dock, and then out into thin air, plunging into the dark water below. For many years, my sister Lorraine was a mystery to me. How could a baby require so much attention? As she became a toddler, how many outfits did a little girl really need anyway? She was very cute, though, her big blue eyes peering out from beneath a mass of red ringlets. As she emerged, her coping strategies went in the opposite direction than Greg's. She acquiesced, becoming shy and uncertain. It would take a lifetime for her to break out of her shell. When she did, she had some partying to do, to make up for her years on the inside. Lorraine had a special place in our family, a bond with my mother in particular, that seemed preordained. While my mom wasn't always comfortable with little boys, requiring that our hands remain outside the covers and visible when we went to bed at night, Lorraine became for her a project, an opportunity to turn out a winning young lady, a credit to their gender. I couldn't compete with that. And Greg was already the family's law enforcement officer. So my own destiny lay not at home, but somewhere out in the world, which was surely awaiting my arrival on the stage. That stage presented itself when my parents sent me off to Miss Greenway's Magic Key Kindergarten. Here was a live audience on whom I could try out the antics I would never have tried at home. Fortunately, Ms. Greenway saw promise in her little performer. She wrote in a note to my parents that my puppet show was the most outstanding drama I have ever known in five-year-old circles. I think you have a dramatic genius on your hands. She also saw in me a budding romantic. It's very hard, she wrote at the end of the year, for us to lose our handsome Romeo. The girls are all insisting that they are going to marry him, I hope they will allow him to finish high school. They did, but just barely. Elementary school provided an even greater opportunity for me to grab the spotlight. In second grade, I heard a takeoff on the popular novelty song, My Boomerang Won't Come Back. Following some violent public demonstrations by a local Dukabor sect, someone had changed the words to, My Dynamite Won't Go Off. I made a stick of dynamite from a toilet paper tube, attached a long string as a fuse, and performed it for my class. In the third grade, I prepared the speech required of us for class by using, once again, a roll of toilet paper as a prop. Unaccustomed as I was to public speaking, I said, I had made a few notes. I then produced the toilet paper, letting it unroll all the way down the row to the back of the classroom. After that... It didn't much matter what the topic was. The classroom was mine. When I wasn't cutting up in class, I was kissing the girls and making them cry, Brenda and Marilyn in particular, though I don't recall anyone crying. I think they were liking it too. At home, I was a good boy. I was obedient to my parents, polite with adults, and while lazy with my household chores, adept at sweeping things under the rug. It was out in the world that I would make my mark. The audience was bigger there, and the applause rang in my ears for a long time afterward. (laughs) 
I'm not sure anyone who knew me as a child would have thought of me as material for the ministry one day. The stage, maybe. But had they known what was going on inside my head, they might have seen me differently. In my 40s, I initiated some correspondence with Father Howarth, who was by then retired. I was a priest, I was living in Ontario, and I was reaching out to him after many years, seeking his advice about a possible move back to the coast. He was pleased to hear from me. I can still see you, he wrote, in a pew on the pulpit side of St. Martin's, about three rows from the back, looking quite alert to the proceedings. It was reassuring that he remembered me, and that I appeared alert to the proceedings, but it was more likely I was daydreaming, my favorite pastime. My head was probably filled with random passing thoughts, exciting possibilities for playtime, and even fulsome scenes of some great inner drama, some of it, perhaps, related to what was going on in church. Our thoughts about God and about the world, our theology, begin not with words and ideas, but with images. Whatever Father Howarth was preaching from the pulpit, impressions were already forming in my head that had little to do with the words leaving his mouth. Some of those impressions came from him, from his example, from how he embodied the message he preached. Some most certainly were forming from my experience of the congregation and of our life and worship together. But other images were pooling independently in my imagination— They would churn and swirl like the tide to form the basis of the theology I would one day try to articulate in words. Some of those images were disturbing, and some, quite frankly, scared the hell out of me. One image I carried around with me was that thing the television set did when someone turned it off. First, the screen would go gray, accompanied by the crackling sound of static electricity. The gray would then begin to shrink, smaller and smaller, into a tiny concentrated dot, no bigger than a pinprick in the middle of the screen. It was as if that tiny hole was a vacuum sucking all the light out of the universe, until suddenly, startlingly, I would be staring into my own face, reflected back in the blackness of the silent screen. It frightened me, the way the light got swallowed up by the darkness." Another disturbing image from a recurring dream seemed to go in the opposite direction. It wasn't about a vacuum taking something away, but a membrane too small to contain all the matter being crammed into it. That matter looked a lot like a compressed lump of wet macaroni, a lot like a growing brain, and it grew fatter and fatter, pushing out at the walls until my head felt like it was going to explode. But the scariest image was a night terror that would wake me up gasping for air. Humphrey Bogart in a trench coat, his collar drawn up high, his fedora pulled low so that his face at first was hidden, but I knew what was coming. He slid silently through the darkness, across my vision from right to left. I would try to scream, but no sound would come, as if my throat had closed. Slowly, without expression, he would turn and stare at me. That was it. But it was enough. And then there was the hand. I had received a plaque from my kindergarten Sunday school teacher. My father hung it on the wall at the foot of my bed. It was a picture, painted and shellacked on a piece of wood, of Jesus, the Good Shepherd. In one hand he held a staff, 
In the other he held a lamb slung over his shoulder, the lost sheep. Beneath, in day-glow letters that shone in the dark, were the words, The Lord is my shepherd. It was reassuring to see that light shining in the darkness. The Lord was my shepherd. He was watching over me, protecting me here in my bedroom, just as he did in church. But not the night I awoke to a terrifying apparition. The silhouette of a hand passing right in front of that plaque, blocking its glow. Nor did the good shepherd protect me from the hand that grabbed my foot through the covers at the end of the bed early one morning, waking me up. Well into my teens, I slept with my feet drawn up into a fetal position in case the hand should return. Some nights, when I'm alone, I still do. And it wasn't just me. Greg experienced something similar, appropriately enough, one Halloween night. He was going out dressed as a hobo. My mother had made up his face with an eyebrow pencil to emulate a few days' stubble. He looked in the mirror, thought it looked stupid, got mad, wiped the stubble from his cheeks with the back of his sleeve, and stormed off into the nearest room, my parents' bedroom. Just to add to the excitement, I reached in, turned out the light, and shut the door. A moment later, he let out a shriek. We all rushed in. He stood at the far side of the bed, his face drained of color. A ghostly hand had passed before his eyes in the dark. I didn't know what to make of the images that disrupted my peace of mind through those early years. I barely know what to make of them now, though I do have my theories. Images are the language of the soul. They achieve their purpose with all its interplay of darkness and light somewhere beneath the level of our consciousness. We rob them of their power if we suppress them, or worse, if we explain them away, like when we try to interpret a dream. It is enough to acknowledge those images, to give them their place, as I'm doing here, undiminished by the neat categories of our reasoning. Those images of my childhood had a lasting effect on my understanding of life. Any personal theology, any conception of God and of the world, would have to accommodate not only clarity and light, but mystery and darkness as well. Whenever a preacher would call people to walk in the light, I would doubt that that was first possible and second wise. Doesn't life comprise both light and darkness, both clarity and mystery? In fact, the brighter the light, the longer the shadow. Just think of wayward televangelists or child-abusing priests. Look where the blinding light of the gospel led them, right back into the shadows. Whatever lay hidden there had grown monstrous precisely because it had been denied. The things that captured my childhood imagination taught me humility, if nothing else, before those great mysteries we call light and darkness, even what we call life and death. As I learned the technical terms of Christian theology, incarnation, resurrection, salvation, I never quite let myself believe they actually covered it. They were provisional ideas at best, God and life being mysteries that lie ultimately beyond our grasp, more in the shadows than in the light, where the soul does its deepest work without the benefit of our clever theological categories. Who thinks things like these? A future minister does, that's who, though it took years for those thoughts to form into words. 
I can only say it's a good thing that church got to me first. Otherwise, I might have had to go off and start my own religion. Greg and I mostly got along during those early years. I followed him around the house, played with him in the backyard, and enjoyed his attention whenever he condescended to give it to me. But he also introduced to me the possibility that everything could change in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. Like walking off the end of a dock, the ground could suddenly fall away beneath my feet. It was a necessary lesson for life, as well as for ministry. It's in God we trust. Pretty much everyone else is capable of being a shithead. One summer's day, Greg and our cousin Jim, who was between our ages and lived across the back lane, asked me if I wanted to play with them. Did I? They were heading off to the field at the bottom of the lane where we could play cowboys and Indians. Did I want to be the Indian? I nodded. Okay, then, they said. You go find a place to hide, and when we come riding by, you jump out at us. I ran ahead down to the field and found for myself the best Indian hiding place since the beginning of Indian hiding places, in the trees at the edge of the field. I settled in beneath a low branch that swept out over my head, concealing me. I made a little bed of leaves and laid down on the soft earth. From there I peered out, waiting for the cowboys to ride by. They would never see me, but I would see them. I imagined with mounting excitement the unfolding scene. Two cowboys, unsuspecting, just clip-clopping along when, Ayee! I'd jump out and throw them off their horses, wrestle them to the ground, and kill them with my knife, or even better, with their own six-shooters. I had a lot of time to think about this scene and various alternatives as well as I lay beneath my branch. The morning sun rose over the field and moved slowly toward the noon hour. A thought began to occur to me. Maybe something had happened to the cowboys back at the ranch. Maybe they weren't coming. And then, maybe they never intended to come at all. I crawled out from my hiding place. I shook the leaves from my hair. I scanned the field, looked up the lane, and across at the distant high school, empty and silent. My lip quivered as I began the long walk home. By the time I reached the door... Had I been wearing war paint, it would have been ruined by the tears rolling down my cheeks. I learned from those older boys what it felt like to be made fun of, to be abandoned, to be powerless. I didn't like it. I wanted to feel that power myself. So, naturally, I tried it out on my best friend Jerry from up the street. He was small and brainy, wore glasses, and in grade two, he read articles from a children's encyclopedia for fun. One day, as we walked home from school, I blocked Jerry's path, saying he couldn't go home. He had to come in and play with me instead. He cried. He stamped his feet. He pushed me. But he wouldn't come in. I didn't know what to do next, so I let him pass. Another day, at Jerry's house, I tried teasing him about something, like Jim and my brother sometimes teased me. He didn't like that either. He picked up his red metal rocket ship and threw it at my head. It drew blood, and it hurt. I just wasn't cut out to be a bully, which was probably a good thing for a minister to be. I felt too much sympathy for my victims, 
and I didn't have it in me to up the ante when they resisted me. As the victim myself, I was too quick to give in and then too prone to forgive and re-establish equilibrium afterward. I was a loser on both counts. I smile now at the mildness of these life lessons. Still, they had lasting consequences. A good portion of my ministry would be about creating a safe place for people where no one would be bullied and no one abandoned. The harder lessons, the truly painful ones, were still to come. Woodward's, which was a regional family-owned department store chain limited to British Columbia and Alberta, was looking for a way to expand into the rest of Canada. My dad was looking for a way to expand his own horizons. So when Woodward's joined with Steinberg's grocery stores of Montreal for an experimental merger, my dad was keen to offer his services. It was his ambition, not ours, to move across the country, though my mother imagined Montreal as a great cosmopolitan city like New York. If you could make it there, you could make it anywhere. So movers came and packed up our home. They filled cardboard cartons with our toys and household items, and they labeled our furniture. Greg, Lorraine, and I stood watching, mute and wide-eyed, in shock. Then we boarded a plane and left behind a piece of our hearts as the lush mountains and glistening ocean disappeared behind us beneath the clouds. There would be many more moves as my father began chasing rainbows, one after another. Each one was meant to take us higher, but ended up only taking us farther from our roots. By the time I was 18, I had crossed the continent three times and lived in 11 different houses— I severed friendships and opportunities, loves and attachments at each departure gate along the way. My brother, sister, and I became the perpetual new kids, the outsiders, the ones from away. We were never the kids who owned the town. We were the ones just passing through. We each developed our own way of coping with the nomadic life my parents adopted for us. But that first move was so wrenching, so disorienting, and so defining that not one of us survived unscathed. For me, it set in motion a compulsive pattern that I kept repeating long after I left home. I continued to move on average every two and a half years of my life, right up to a few years ago. Just like my father, I would think nothing of looking far afield for my next opportunity. When it came along, I said goodbye, packed up, and moved on. I even prided myself in being able to set up the new house in a single day, hanging curtains and assembling bed frames by nightfall. I learned not to trust feelings of safety and security. They were as false as they were fleeting. Don't attach, I came to believe, because you'll be leaving it all behind one day. Travel light, because that day will come like a thief in the night. Perhaps this, too, was a good lesson for a minister to be. Non-attachment is, after all, a hallmark of all the great wisdom traditions. Jesus himself had no place to lay his head. But the truth is, having known so early what it felt like to belong, it still hurts to my core when I don't. And when that fog on blows I will be coming home this has been a reading from my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. 
If you'd like to respond to what you've heard or share something about your own story, you can leave a comment on Twitter under the hashtag TheMysticCave. Or you can write to me personally through the contact page of my website at www.brianepearson.ca. In the next episode, I enter my teens on the West Island of Montreal, where the tension between Protestants and Catholics confused me. But it was a heady time with Expo 67, girls, recreational drugs, and the things to come, my rock and roll band. The church kept me engaged by engaging my music for a monthly folk mass. Otherwise, like with most teenagers, the church didn't know what to do with me. Thank you for listening. There's more to come. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. It's too late to stop now.